change around my team, yeah, we off the leash. You can look us in the eyes and see we have peace. Black and gold, that's the colors when we go to war. When we step up on that field, you go hear my roar. We them tiger cats, we them, we them tiger cats. We them tiger cats, we them, we them tiger cats. Yeah, nobody hitting harder. Better keep your guard up, cause with everything we drop, we can score it when we wanna. Welcome to Podsky Wee Wee. I'm Josh Smith. Now Mike Graham. Mike, we have another jam-packed show today, but before we get into all things CFL and Hamilton Tiger Cats, you told me earlier today in a text message that you had something that you wanted to get off your chest. So, like we do with the opening most weeks, I hand things off to you, buddy boy. The floor is yours. What do you got to say? Well, I got a bozo, Josh. Um, you know, I was Is it me for missing the po- post-game show last week? No, I, I had oh. you up there, but okay. uh, you didn't crack uh, the the bozo case. So, um, <laughs> but we got we got one here. It's the the Elks herd on uh, Twitter. I'm not sure if they're a podcast, but it says they're official fan hub of the Edmonton Elks. But they put out a tweet the other day, you know, throwing shade at the Tide Cats, and I'm all for this. You know, we talked about this. We want rivalry. You know, we want back and forth. We for think sure. that the league needs this kind of stuff. So I'm just going to give it back to them. He, they, they they wrote a tweet said breaking the tie cats are releasing a new jersey patch due to the collapse in the last game versus the Stampeders. And then you know it's like a sponsor. There's a picture of Simone with the jersey on it in the corner. It says warning choking hazard. Now listen, like I just said, I'm all for rivalry and and throwing jabs, but like do they really have a leg to stand? Like <laughs> you know what team you cheer for? Of all the people beat. to start throwing shade. I would right. think Edmonton would be the last one, would it not? Like, if it was Stamps fans, I'd get it. Even Argos fans, you want to give it to us because we're the rivals. We're 0-2, they're on one I understand. The Elks? When's the last time they saw a team? their team win at home? Like, come on. Oh, they didn't win at home last year, and they haven't won at home yet this year. Preseason game, regular season game, two Elks. They're 0-2, just like the Thai Cats. But like you said, if this was the Stampeders, you know, they, they did it. They were the team that came back against the Thai Cats and won. Fair enough. But the Elks, you're you're an embarrassment to the city. Like honestly, like <laughs> no, one, no one cares about you anymore. Like everyone I talk to says no one cares. Like like Victor Kui or whatever is doing a great job, but he's not bringing it back. I mean, there was like twenty twenty thousand announced at the stadium for their first regular season game. There might have been ten. That's what I was I was told. Like actual people there. So you're a bit of an embarrassment of a franchise right now. So I don't think you should be throwing shade at the Tiger Cats. Yeah, mind your own house. Like it's like looking at this person whose house next door is like the kitchen's on fire while your entire house is engulfed in flames. It's like maybe pay attention to your own problems before you start looking at someone else and going, look, look at your garbage. It's terrible when you're, you know. Eh. Anyway, I, I'm with you though. Like I like the the back and forth, but if you're gonna if you're gonna give that out, you gotta like you said have a leg to stand on. And right now. The Ed- the Edmonton Elks have no legs, no arms. They barely have a torso. The head's not really working. Like, just a flesh wound to them. <laughs> it's just a flesh wound to them. But like, all right, cool, taking some shots. But I guess that's what you got to do when you can't. You don't want to look inward and be like, oh my god, look how bad we are. So, oh. 
You want to make your little memes, go ahead, make your little memes. But, uh, you know, we'll see at the end of the season who's, you know, who's done better, the Tiger Cats or the Alex Side. I'm pretty sure I know what's going to, you know, what's going to happen there. They got a game coming up against each other in a couple weeks on Canada Day here in Hamilton. So we'll we'll get a good grasp on who's what when we see them play against each other in a few weeks. All right, let's move on, Mike. And we are going to change things up a little bit this week. Last week, you and I said we had plans on doing one of our old school in-podcast game reviews since I let you know that I would not be able to participate in the Instant Reactions post-game show that was live on Twitter following Saturday's contest due to a previous commitment I had. And I just want to take this time to thank, once again, Troy Durrell from the Eating and Raw podcast for stepping in in my absence. Mike has assured me that I have not lost my job. I have not been Wally Pip, so whew, that is a, a breath of fresh air there. That's a, you know, a weight off my shoulders that I've been carrying since Saturday night. But since you know, you- that I'm a, yeah, I consider myself somewhat of a sports aficionado. But when you tweeted that, I I have to admit I had to I had to Google it. I had oh to Google really? The yeah, I did not know the meaning of it, but yeah, now I know. Oh, well, I'm a bit of a sports history nerd, so the things that rattle around in my brain when it comes to some of this stuff, it's I don't know, it's it's pretty bizarre. But anyway, uh, since you and I already gave our opinion on the game, you on Saturday night and. I watched the game on Sunday morning and then wrote my weekly post-game piece for Three Down Nation. It felt a bit redundant, I think, for us to come on here and kind of talk about stuff when we've already discussed it in other formats. So I thought instead we would use this time to kind of talk about, and I know it's early, but let's talk about sort of the state of the team as a whole after the first two weeks of the season. And again, like I said, I realize this is this is very early in the year to talk about this, but they're 0-2, so there's definitely some things here that I think we can discuss. And more, pardon me, more specifically, Mike, I want to ask you, what the hell is wrong with the Hamilton Tiger Cats right now? So, Mike, I ask you in very simple terms, what the hell is wrong with the Hamilton Tiger Cats right now? Too many turnovers, man. Bingo. Like, honestly, you watch that game, and I know there's, you know, 24-point collapse. It's not good. But, um, you know, there's things that you, the turnovers was what killed us. You know, the, the offense was tremendous, I thought. You know, after giving Tommy Condell a hard time on the podcast after the first game, I thought he came out with a tremendous game plan. Agreed. Uh, quick passes. Uh, you know, he, he showed me that he can do a good job with with a not great offensive line, um, just by the play calling that he that he had uh, in that game. So he, show, he showed uh, me that he could adapt because yes. we'd always talked about like his lack of 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 his willingness to adapt and kind of coming from that Ken Austin school of this is how we're going to do it. And whether it works or not, I don't care. He clearly saw in the first game that there was an issue with trying to go for the deep pass. So what did they do when they started the game? It was short stuff, quick screens, screen passes to the backs, throws to the backs out in the flat, seven-yard plays that guys like White or Addison would then break into 12 to 20-yard. Like It was that stuff that you and I had been kind of yelling about after last week's game that they actually did this week. And it's it was, it was pretty surprising that... A, we, we were right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Okay. Like you, usually you and I get on here and we say these things off the top of our heads and we're like, oh, well, that was stupid. But this we were actually right on. And then, I mean, the, the one thing I will go with that, not to I, I'm sorry to cut you off, but you and I haven't really had a chance to talk about the game. Why did they get away from it? Because didn't you feel like they kind of got away from it in the second half? It was working so well in the first half. And maybe this is stupid of me. Maybe this is just years of playing Madden. You find a play, you find a set of plays that always work. Keep doing it until the defense stops you. The defense was not stopping them. And then with those short passes, they were able to hit those long plays. They hit a couple big. The touchdown to Tim White was in into the wind about 30 yards down the field. They had some big plays to Poppy White. Like they were able to yeah, hit those chunk plays. Uh, 
Dunbar too had long pass. They did the touchdown pass, correct? Yep. So like they were able to hit those long plays because they were working the short stuff. And then didn't it feel do you like they kind of got out of that in the second half? Yeah, a little bit. Um, but you know, I really I thought they moved the ball really well in the second half. I mean, they were in the red zone. Well, yeah, uh, at least twice. Um, in field goal range, at least three times, and you know, they 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 went for it on third down, and the, the quarterback sneak, they they came up short, and then they do another quarterback sneak, and and somehow the ball gets ripped away from Dane touchdown. Um, they had that Dane Evans interception in the end zone, so I I thought the offense looked pretty good in the second half. They just kept turning the ball over. Yeah, and to me, that was my number one thing too. Was is with this team right now, it's turnovers, and kind of almost specific to Dane Evans. He's simply turning the ball over too much. He's got to be better at protecting the football. He has seven total turnovers in two games. He's thrown four interceptions and he has three lost fumbles and he had a fourth fumble and it took them out of field goal range in this game. So there's another three points taken off the board. The interception to Braylon Addison in this, in this game. And I was on Bill Kelly's show earlier this week and we talked about this. It reminded me of what Mazzoli used to do and all that stuff that used to just drive fans nuts about Jeremiah Mazzoli was he'd look like a world beater and then he'd have these brain farts where he would throw this and no interception or no turnovers ever. It's never a good time to turn the ball over, but in these critical moments, like yes, the tie cats are up 24 to three, but if they score a touchdown, even if they kick a field goal there, I think that that game takes a whole other like tenor. Like there was, and, and I, I've talked to some St. Peter's fans, Ryan Valentine even mentioned this in his post game piece on three down is that, if the Cats had scored after in one of those two instances, whether it was the, the the drive that ended inside the 10 on the Evans interception or the one that ended on the Schilt stuff, if the Ticats score a touchdown there, there's a good chance Bo gets pulled because it's 31 to three. There's no chance they're coming back from it. Like we're talking about a completely, completely different game, but the turnovers are absolutely killing them. And I think a lot of people thought that when Mazzoli left, that this sort of interception stuff would would go with him but Dane Evans has not really been all that great protecting the football either he has 22 interceptions in his career to just 33 touchdowns and that three to two ratio is kind of below average for a starting quarterback in the in like 2022 professional football and like I said his his interceptions have kind of come at the worst possible time he had the one that ended the game in overtime obviously but if you go back and watch that I don't know it didn't look like the pass was too high it didn't look like the pass was too low it looked like Sean Thomas Erling just dropped it but the one in the end zone, that that's the one Evans himself said it was a bad throw that took points off the board. And like nothing really ever boils down to one play in football. But if that had just been a throwaway and a field goal, I think we're having a much different discussion tonight. Yeah. And that throw, I mean, it's the, as soon as he let it go, I was like, oh, boy, that's going to be a pick because you could just see the coverage yeah. that it just wasn't going to connect. Um, but funny thing you mentioned, Ryan uh, Ballantyne, guess who was the first person in the in the Twitter space <laughs> after the game. Oh, I mean, who who, who else could it be? First guy is. Faith I'm surprised. Also. I'm surprised he didn't ask to to join in. I know, right? I was surprised too, but uh, I found that kind of humorous. But uh, but yeah, the turnovers are, are 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 a big problem right now for Dane, and, and you know, obviously that that can be fixed. Um, I, I think at times he's he's trying to make too much happen, like mm-hmm. like the, the fumble that. He kept going backwards. It, it uh, kicked us out of field goal range. He just, he just, he has to let go of the ball. He has to throw it away or something because we get one field goal, just one on any of those like three or four drives, and I think we win this game. Yeah, I, I agree. Is there anything else that you 
are looking at this team and going, man, we got to fix this right now? Well, I, I'm, I'm beating a dead horse, but I'm still worried about the offensive line because, you know, Tommy Condell, Condell had a great game plan, but defensive coordinators can figure that out, right, if we're just going to do those quick passes. So we need – and I thought the offensive line played well. You know, there were some deep passes as well. I thought they protected pretty good, but I'm still worried about that offensive line. Yeah, I think I there was a change in the offensive line this week. Vaughn Call was moved off left tackle over to right guard. Jesse Gibbon was moved from right guard over to center. And we had a rookie, Tyrone Riley, I believe his name is, who started at left tackle. I thought they did a decent job. I wouldn't say that it was an excellent job, but I think compared to what we saw the week before, I think it was a more than adequate change. I don't know if this change will be permanent once guys get healthy. Alex Fontana missed the game due to injury. And Kyle Saxley was out due to injury. So if we ever get one of or both of those guys back, could this could it see a change in the makeup of the offensive line anyway? We'll have to wait and see. But I didn't I didn't think they played poorly. Yes, no. you're right. Teams can definitely game plan against that, but I everyone gets paid in this in this league. So if you think this is what we showed you this week, you're gonna game plan for that. You gotta try something else. I thought when they took shots deep, I, I thought Evans had time. There are obviously some plays where he didn't. But every quarterback gets harassed every mm-hmm. single game. So it's not exactly – you can't say like, oh, they allowed five pressures and that's terrible. Well, I'm sure most quarterbacks get pressured that much. And I think this spoke to maybe not how bad Hamilton's offensive line was, but maybe that game against the Riders just showed how good that Riders front seven is because they le- they they were good against the Elks the, the following week, like this past week. So I'm just thinking that maybe it's not wasn't so much that Hamilton's offensive line is really that bad but the Saskatchewan's defense's line is just that good. So maybe we can take that from that as well. The one thing that I'm concerned about, and I'm curious to get your thoughts on this, it's it's kind of a, it's not a statistical thing. It's not something that we can like, you know, really define, but I'm calling it killer instinct. And this team's lack of it, especially on defense. I've heard what the the, the coaching staff and the players have said about this being a different year than last year. But this team has a finishing problem, and they have since last season began. Twice already this season, and they've only played two games, they've allowed teams, the Ticats have, to pull ahead or pull away late in games. Say what you want about the final outcome against the Riders, but that game was 15-13 with three minutes left. The Ticats played pretty poorly, and it was a field goal game late. Then even after the Riders scored a touchdown, it's still just a nine-point game with three minutes to go, but then Evans throws the interception, gets returned to the one-yard line, Riders scored, second touchdown, the game's over. And then on Saturday, we obviously know what happened, but that was a game the Ticats controlled until they literally choked the game away. Like I said, it was on, I was on Bill Kelly's show this week on Monday, which seems to be an, uh, a weekly thing now. So if you're listening to this show and want to listen to me talk more about Ticats, tune into the Bill Kelly show on Monday because I'll probably be there at some point in the morning. And he and I talked about how Saturday's game ended almost exactly like the last real game played at Tim Hortons Field, and that was the Grey Cup. And not just that it ended on a last play interception in overtime, but that the Ticats coughed up a big lead late in the game. Saturday's was obviously much larger than the Grey Cup, but it was still a pretty big lead. Ticats were up 12 with 10 minutes left and didn't score again until the field goal on the very last play of like regulation in the Grey Cup. And then we have to remember back to earlier last season, and they had those critical two last-second losses at home to both Montreal and Toronto. In the Montreal game, they were up 17-3 to late in the third quarter and lost that game in overtime 23-20 to after the Owls scored 17 straight points and took the lead in the fourth quarter. And if you recall that game, 
It took a 55-yard miracle field goal by Taylor Bertolet into the wind to even get that game to overtime. And then against the Argos, the next week, they were up 20-8 to early in the fourth quarter, and Toronto would score 16 of the game's final 19 points and would win on a walk-off Boris B-Day field goal. They can say what they want about New Year's and all that sorts of stuff, but coming up small in these clutch situations seems to be written into this team's DNA going back now over a year. And if they keep choking these leads away, I think it's going to bite them in the ass like it did last year. You look at those two losses that should have been wins and 99 times out of hundred, they probably would be wins. I would think against the Owls and the Argos that cost the tie cats, the chance to finish first niece. They win both those games. They finish what 11 and three last year. And we're having a much different comfort or no, I guess they would have been 10 and 10 and four, but 10 and four versus eight and six and hosting the East final, even though I know they obviously they got to the gray cup. So playing that game didn't really make a big difference, but do you, don't you think that that if they hosted the East final in Hamilton, 10 and four record coming off the 15 and three record, I think they would have blown the Argos out at Tim Hortons field and said they had this wonderful come from behind victory that we all laud. But if they would have won one, if they would have beat the Argos or found a way to win both those games that they lost, they host these finals, a different story. So something in my opinion needs to change about this team and kind of how they perform late in games, because you know, they say once is an accident and twice is a trend. What the hell is five times then? Yeah, there's a definite problem with Mark Washington's defense late in games. I think there's no if ends or buts about it. Um, now I'm not I'm not gonna put all the blame on the defense for this one because of all the turnovers and you know the strip on the Dan Evans sneak led to the tie 24-24 I believe. Um, the defense you know stopped them to a field goal in overtime. So. Um, but but I'm with you, man. Like there's been way too many games where this defense just falls apart at the end, and I don't know what the problem is if he's sitting back or you know playing prevent or or what it is. But something needs to change because the defense is on fire it seems for three quarters, and then the fourth quarter comes around and we just fall apart. Specifically to this last game, did it not feel like on that last stamps drive in regulation that the Ticats were playing not to lose instead of playing not to win on defense. They were giving up a lot of stuff over the middle of the field and Calgary just kind of picked them apart and slowly, but steadily picked up the yards. They needed to hit like, what was it like a 30 something yard field goal to tie the game. Like it felt like that, that situation caused called for more pressure. If you got to get in Bo's face, he's got to chuck one up deep and you get beat. I mean, okay. Yeah, it still sucks. But at the end of the day, it, 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 would have felt a little better to me watching the game if they would have tried something other than be so so passive or did you not think they were passive because I, I certainly did I think there might be a problem with our defensive line to be honest with you mm-hmm. we're not getting pressures on pressure on the quarterback yeah. uh, I think one sack in two games which is at the bottom of the league obviously the interior is tremendous and I have a lot a lot of faith in Hauser and Carney and uh, Bennett but they're just they're just not getting pressure to the quarterback, and that's going to be tough no matter how talented our secondary and our linebackers are. Uh, if the quarterback has a ton of time, then, you know, it's it's going to be tough to cover receivers for that long. So, um, you know, you can't put the blame on that on the defensive line, though, last year, and the same things were happening. So um, I think it's something to do with how Mark Washington calls the plays late in games. That's certainly fair. That's certainly fair. Okay. I know we've obviously spent a lot of this time talking about the bad because when you talk about a team, cover a team, cheer for a team that is 0-2 and just recently blew a 24-point lead in their latest loss, there's a lot of bad to discuss. However, Mike, I do want to 
give a glimmer of hope here for some Ticap fans that are maybe listening to this. The first is, it's just two games into the season. Yes, obviously you would rather be 2-0 and than 0-2, but I think they showed a lot better in that second game. And I think I have actual faith in this team with the talent on the roster and then the coaching staff that they can actually turn this around more than I think that this is going to go completely sideways. And in six weeks, we're talking about a team that's 0-7. Secondly, and Mike, you can pat yourself on the back for this one, the East sucks again. So <laughs> even at 0-2, they're tied for second in the division. Both the Red yep. Blacks and the Alouettes are also 0-2. Ottawa has looked improved, I think, in their first two games. But they've scored just 29 points so far this year and didn't find the end zone in their last game. I know both their losses came against the Bombers, but if you watch those games, Winnipeg doesn't look like the world beater they did a year ago. Mm-hmm. And it tells me I don't think the Red Blacks are quite there yet. And then you look at Montreal, and that thing is careening into full-blown disaster territory rather quickly. They benched Vernon Adams against the Argos. He's now out with COVID, so he'll miss it weeks, at least this week's game. And now they're riding with Trevor Harris. Their head coach, Kahari Jones, is already on the hot seat, despite leading the Owls to the playoffs the last two years, which their 2019 trip to the playoffs was their first time going to the playoffs since 2015. And then even if we look at the one team in the division that has a win, that's the Argos after beating the Alouettes last week, they didn't look particularly good in that win. And yeah. The Alouette's kicker missed like a five-yard field goal at the at the end there to exactly, win it. Exactly, exactly. And then you have their one of their prized free agent acquisitions, Andrew Harris, already hurt after one game because that's what happens when you rely on a 35-year-old running back. So I understand things are bleak. I understand we shouldn't be sitting here, you know, raw-rawing, obviously, but it's still early and no one in the East is pulling away yet. And the division looks terrible. So I don't think all is lost. And I think even if... We kind of felt bad after Saturday, and I think we will look back on that game and go, man, that's the one that got away. I don't know. This Maybe this is just me trying to get a silver lining out of this, you know, multi-week winless start, which I looked it up. It's the 12th time in the last 22 seasons that this team has started 0-2. But if there's something to be taken from it, Mike, there there's still a lot of time left, and this division does not look anywhere near as good as I think, at least I thought it would. A few weeks back. No, I I, there, I think there's a ton of positives to take away from this Calgary game. You know, the offense looked tremendous. Dane looked great for the most part. You know, I know he had his turnovers, but over 400 yards passing, some some touchdown pass. The the receivers really. Tim White really bounced back. Tim White that. had a Tim White had a break. That's the game that I think we all expected Tim White to have. And I don't think he started that game particularly. He had a couple drops early, and then came back. And I, when I saw his stats, I was like, he had 11 catches for like what a buck 31 or something like that. Like. Yeah, Tim went and Braylon Addison was great. Like I, Stephen Dunbar has the Stephen Dunbar's turning into the big play guy, which is not what I thought he would be. You know what I mean? Like no. he's got he's got two long touchdowns this year. That's not what I expected from him. So even though I expected a good season from him, didn't really expect that. So yeah, the receiving core. I mean, if we were to do a post game show, that would have been something that you and I would have discussed because I thought that they were excellent against the Stamps. Yeah, so I thought there was a ton of positive to take away from this game. Um, you know, just clean up the turnovers, and, and we should win a lot of games. This is if this is the offense that's going to be on the field, you know. Um, so I'm pretty positive coming out of a 0-2 start. I think that, you know, we'll talk about it later, the Winnipeg game, but I think we have a, a very good shot against them next week. So I think we could be 2-2 two and two, um, by the bye week. Oh, very. Look at Mike being all positive. I like when you're positive, Mike. Anyway, let's move on to some Ticats news. And the team announced on Tuesday, that's today that we're recording, that they have activated receiver Tyler Tronowski off the six-game injury list. Tronowski was placed on the sixth game back on May 30th as part of the team's first series of roster moves after their first preseason game. This 
a lot of people thought maybe these guys weren't six game worthy. And I mean, Ternowski's coming off earlier than that. So I guess clearly that's the case. But he has been dealing with a shoulder injury that kept him out of the final week of camp and the first two regular season games, obviously. So, Mike, what do you think activating Ternowski means for the Ticats roster heading into week three? We know that they've had some ratio issues with injuries, especially along the offensive line. Do you think that it is now possible with Ternowski coming back into the lineup that we could see the Ticats go to what they were going to do, or at least I believe they were planning on doing, which was starting two Canadian receivers, and then that could lead to maybe Don Jackson getting back on the roster? What do you think? That's what I'm thinking. Like, if you you would know that Ternowski, I've heard, had a very good camp. Um, the first so, week of camp, I thought he was true. He, the first day I went, he, which I believe was the first day, he was with the starting unit, but he spent most of it with the second team. But I thought he looked, it was almost like, you know how sometimes you hear about guys, like they go into that second year as a pro and like the light switch goes off and all of a sudden they get it. That's like, Game kind of slows down for him a bit. They understand things a little bit better. And last year, that that training camp was like that's like drinking fire or drinking fire, drinking water out of a fire hose, drinking fire out of a water hose. That would be unfortunate. But you know what I mean? Like it's just you. They got these guys got so much so quickly that the second one, it seemed like things sort of slowed down for him. And he looked, he did look excellent. So I I thought that he he was worthy of starting to start the season. So you got Turnowski and Unger out there, yep. the two Canadian receivers. You just if it if it finds a way to get Don Jackson back on the field, then I'm happy. That's all. Like we just we need him on the field. Like he's just such a good running back. He's such an important part to this offense. And and they they did really well without him. I thought John Thomas Erlingson actually looked pretty good last game as well. Um, but just to have him on the field is a, is a huge difference. So I'm hoping that Tronowski gets a start and we can see more Don Jackson. It matters to get Don Jackson on the field if they actually run the football, and that's. Mm. Fair. That's sort of the the bugaboo for me with this team is that, yeah, Don Jackson's great, but if he gets seven touches a game, what's the point? You might as well not even have him on the team at that point. You know what I mean? Like, again, I, I'm, I think I'm done t- kind of worrying about the running game and whether very few teams in the CFL actually run the football with any consistency. I think maybe not just you and I, but CFL fans in general, I think maybe we put a little bit too much stock in running the football, but I mean, I'd like to, because I, I think he can also be dynamic in the passing game. And I agree with you. I thought Sean Thomas, aside from the drop that, like the tip that led to the game ceiling interception, I thought was mostly pretty good. He ran the ball hard. He was, he was catching balls over the backfield. Like he was that hybrid player that he can be. I think Don Jackson can be that too. So I don't know necessarily if Turnowski coming back into the lineup will allow the Ticats to get Jackson on there. I think, I mean, they were, if they were going to start two Canadians, they were going to start eight Canadians. So I guess they, they could get away with that because Turnowski would just be the seventh Canadian. You could still start the two on the offense, two Americans on the offensive line. But I do think that maybe, and this is just me thinking out loud here. I, I would hope that Turnowski can start and I could get Jackson back on the, on the field. But I think it might take one of those offensive linemen getting healthy and the cats going back to four on the offensive line before we'll, we'll really actually see Jackson get back, which is unfortunate because I do think that he can be sort of a difference maker out of the backfield, whether it's running or catching the football. And he might be dinged up, actually. I think I read that he's a little dinged yeah. up this week. So um, we'll see seems, how that... He seems, to, he seems to get hurt quite a bit, unfortunately. I think he's, he's a smaller guy. He's, like, he's, he's obviously a shiftier, faster runner, so I guess that kind of happens. But, I mean, if he, is, if he isn't healthy, then that's, that's something else entirely. But we'll have to wait and see, right? All right, continuing on with the Tiger Cats news, Mike. Tiger Cats linebacker Simone Lawrence was fined for his week one hit on Cody Fajardo that drew the ire of many fans across the league. Look... You, we sat here, us, everyone, we've adjudicated basically every Simone Lawrence hit since 2019, and I'm just, 
I'm just over it. Like whatever side you land on on this, you're likely entrenched in your position. So nothing we say will sway you either way. But I will ask before we move on to the question that I really want to talk about is, do you think the fine was fair? Uh, no, I don't. I don't. I don't think he should have been fined. I think there should have been a penalty on the play, and there was. Um, but that's it. I don't think there should have been a fine. And obviously, he wasn't suspended, so that's a good thing. But I just think it was a hard football play. And you know, sometimes this day and age, you are you get in trouble for laying a big hit. It doesn't matter if it's legal. It doesn't matter if it's not helmet to helmet. If it looks vicious then sometimes you get a penalty no matter what. So it's basically illegal to hit hard in football now. Were you surprised that Tunde Adelike didn't get a flag when he knocked out that Stamps running back? Yeah. I yeah, was shocked. I was. Yeah. I was absolutely shocked. And when and when you see the hit, it was like, it was shoulder to shoulder. Like it wasn't helmet to helmet or anything like that. But I was like, I saw yeah, that I happen and I was like, oh, that's that's 15 yards and there's an automatic first down. And then the flag didn't come out. I was like, you know what? If that was Simone, that's an automatic flag. Oh, yeah. There was even another hit actually. Uh, a similar hit to a receiver earlier in the week in a different game where the guy turned his back, like he wasn't helmet to helmet, turned his back and like, it Oh, looked... it was in the Ottawa game. Right. And uh, you know, I think he, he got a 15 yard for that unnecessary roughness. Um, I, I get it. The the plays happen so quick. It's hard to tell for the ref sometimes, but I'm just, I'm just sick of, you know, when defensive players make a big hit it's just an automatic flag and and you're right as soon as that hit happened with the delicate i thought oh here we go here's the flag that's coming and and that really reminded me of hitch back there right hitchcock mm-hmm. laying those big hits i love that i love that stuff so i'm glad he didn't get a penalty on that play but uh yeah i i was a little upset that simone got fine but uh it is what it is i guess so I'm glad you brought up that Ottawa game because that's kind of where I want to take this conversation. And it's not really about Simone, but it kind of is. But also, uh, just to touch on what you said, did you? May, we'll go here first, I guess. Should this sort of stuff be reviewable? Because, and I know that they want to shorten games and all that other sort of stuff, but these are such big momentums. Like, I think the one in the Ottawa game took a second and second and 10 to a first down. And you get 15 yards. And it's a huge game-changing play essentially like it, it re- revitalizes an offense they get the ball they get to keep going do you think these things should be something that that coaches are allowed to challenge and refs can get a second look at and because in that ottawa situation i think if you looked at that a second time you'd go oh that's not mm-hmm. that's not a, that that's not a, an unnecessary hit that was just a good clean football play it's second it's third down let's move on you know what i mean like so do you think maybe that's something that we should if we're if we're going to and I have no problems with them wanting to make the game safer, but if we're going to go this deep into it, where now big hits that are legal are now deemed flag worthy, that maybe we should allow this to maybe not even be, maybe, maybe not. Well, no challenge, I guess would be the best way to do it. You know what I mean? Like use instant yeah. replay to get these things right. Yeah, I'd be for that. I mean, I'm for all the, the you know, challenging as long as it it's quickly done. And doesn't hold up the game a lot, but it's it's such you know a 15 yard penalty. It could mean an ejection for a player. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I mean I think that should be looked at. Maybe we can uh, put that in the instant replay thing because you're right. It can it can affect the game in a big way. Okay, so I'm going to assume that you watched last week's game between the Bombers and the Red Blacks, given what you just said. Mm-hmm. Okay, so in that game, as I was watching live, and maybe you caught it too, but Bombers defensive end Jackson Jeffcoat. Fell on top of running backs or Red Blacks running back uh, Devontae Williams well after Williams was down. I went and found the play. I posted a gif of it on my Twitter feed so you can go there and look at it. There is no question in my mind that Jeff Coat hits Williams well after the play was over. The conversation around some of Simone, Simone's hits, and especially after the one 
on Fajardo back in week one wasn't about necessarily the dirtiness of it, but the unnecessariness of it. Because if Simone, it was, you know, Simone was trying to make a play, but Fajardo was basically down. So the hit was deemed kind of excessive, right? Whether you agree or disagree with that sentiment, in my opinion, isn't important to the, the larger point I'm going to try to make here. This hit by Jeffcoat, and I think, you know, calling it a hit is maybe a little bit too much. It was more like a belly flop, like he did like a super fly splash onto a prone ball carrier. So much later and so much more unnecessary than Simone's hit, and yet there was no flag on the play, not a mention of it by the announcers, and I didn't see anywhere near the level of discourse online immediately following the play or after the game than we did when Simone's hit have come up that are even considered borderline unnecessary, let alone completely unnecessary like this one Jeffcoat was. So I say all that to ask, does this tell you that maybe Simone has a target on its back? He's watched more closely and scrutinized more intensely because of who he is. And if that is the case, then these calls for his head after plays, like, for instance, the Fajardo one, that the the real anger and desire there is is kind of fake almost. You know what I mean? But like... Like the, the, the want to make football safer mm-hmm. is, is not real. Or is this maybe just a product of people building up a narrative on someone and then not really caring what anyone else does? Well, it's just, you know, Simone has a reputation now, right? I mean, he's yeah. the new Kyrie Saber. Um, and I'm not saying that he's like Kyrie Saber because I thought he was a headhunter completely. But, you know, that's the reputation that he has. So people are going to jump on him. And, and, and the hit was it wasn't similar to the Claros hit. But it was a Saskatchewan Rough Rider quarterback. Uh, he was going down, and Simone came in low, and not, you know what I mean. He he hit him in a similar fashion, low to the ground. So people freaked out about that. It's just he has a tar- you're, he has a target on his back, and he's that guy now. He's the dirtiest player in the league by reputation from every other team except every other fan base except for the Tiger Cats. Um, and we don't think he's a dirty player. We think that he plays close to the line that's you know that's why he's so good because he's like that so um if it was anyone else it, it wouldn't have mattered and yes he plays close to the line sometimes he plays over the line like that hit on claris we've spent how many episodes saying when he when he first hit first hit happened then when he got suspended and then when he appealed to suspension, like we've talked about it over and over again it's not just a matter of defending quote-unquote our guy but he's not the only one and that's kind of my point here like if all these people who are like, he's dirty, these hits are unnecessary, this isn't how you should play the game, where was that when Jeffco full body landed on – is it because it's a running back? Is it because – pardon me. Is it because it's you know it's, it's a running back, not a quarterback? Do, do people just not like – is it because it's not Saskatchewan? Is it like what reason other than they've built up this narrative about one player – and that's just we're just going to watch him, but everyone else kind of gets you know a pass. I'm very curious to see if a fine is levied because there was no flag. But I'm very curious to see if, and again, it wasn't a hit to the head, but it's still it's late and unnecessary. And that's sort of the stuff like they want to take out things where, like Chris Van Zyl got a flag for basically getting DDT'd against the yeah, stamps. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, he was engaging in it, but he got a flag for that. And that was one of those after the plays, you do that again, you're getting booted out of the game. Who is it from Saskatchewan? Was it Moncrief that got booted for for two unnecessary, like after the play flags? I think it was. So mm-hmm. like you're you're getting that. You're trying to get like you're again, you're trying to make the game safer. But if that's the case, and yeah, maybe it's not the world's worst hit because it barely was a hit, but that's the type of stuff I think that's less 
understandable in the heat of the battle when the guy's down and a full like second and a half to two seconds later, you're landing on top of him versus a heat of the moment. You're going for a guy's kidneys and he gets pulled down. You end up hitting him in the shoulder or the head. You know what I mean? Like there's, there's levels of this stuff. And it just feels like everyone's got this hard on for Simone that they just kind of wash away everything everyone else does. Yeah. I think that's absolutely the case. The, the guy, um, you know, people hate him, you know, they, they just want him to be suspended. They want, they don't want him in the game anymore and have fun doing that. Cause he's going to be around for a while. So I'm going to enjoy, I find, which I find weird because if he was to say, if, if the tie cats and him had a split, like they did with Brandon Banks, there would be eight other fan bases who would be like, we want him in our, in our locker room. We want Absolutely. him on our team. So yeah. you don't like him cause he doesn't play for your team. That's, and, and, and I'll be honest with this. If he didn't play for the tie cats, I probably wouldn't be a fan either, but it is what it is. Uh, okay, last bit of Ticats news, Mike, before we move on to some general CFL talk. Did you see Ticats, I was going to say owner, but I guess caretaker, because that's what he likes, Bob Young take to Twitter and take a lighthearted jab at the XFL? I did, I did. Did you Did you get a chuckle out of it? I got a little chuckle out of it, yeah. Yeah, yeah me sure. too. So anyone out there who didn't see it, Young was replying to Alabet's owner, Gary Stern, when Stern made kind of a tongue-in-cheek comment about getting his new Twitter following up to The Rock's level. The Rock, as we all know, the multi-hyphenate superstar, movie star, wrestling star, all that sorts of stuff, TV star. He also happens to be part owner of the XFL after he, his business partner, Danny Garcia, and Redbird Capital bought the league out of bankruptcy back in 2020. Obviously, no one in the CFL in any way is allowed to talk negatively about uh, the XFL. You have to talk about it in glowing terms only, or else you see a bunch of these douchebags out there attacking you. But that didn't seem to deter Young, who said to Stern, and this is a direct quote, you are aiming much too low. If The Rock can get 15 million followers for his bankrupt league, you and I should be at 30 million. This comment has obviously not sat well with some. As you know, most should be aware, Bob Young was a well-known opponent of any sort of deal between the two leagues when the two sides admitted publicly that they were talking, I guess, what was it, about a year ago, I guess now? But we rarely see, you know, the what I like to call the usually non-controversial Mr. Young Take any sorts of shots like this, even the, even in jest or or not, because if, if you don't remember, he was the man who, upon buying the Ty Cats in t- 2003, wanted the fans to stop chanting Argos suck. Like he doesn't like this sort of public animosity. So to see him take a jab at the XFL, I felt was a little out of character. But anyway, what did you make of his comments, Mike? And do you feel and how do you feel, sorry, about the uproar that it's kind of caused amongst this infinitesimally small segment of the CFL community that favored a collaboration between the CFL and the twice failed XFL? Well, I think that, um, it was humorous. Um, but I don't know, man, like, I just don't know if you should be fueling the fire <laughs> per se, for the rock. I mean, say what you want, like, but there's a lot of money behind the new XFL. You know, they were close to a collaboration and it fell apart. I could see the XFL trying to, you know, end the CFL. Like uh, that yeah. would be, I mean, I could see it. Why not? I mean, we see it, we see it in the States with, um, you know, franchises, the Canadian football league's teams are worth nothing. Okay. All you have to have is a team in the States and, and you can be worth a billion dollars apparently. Cause that's what the MLS is doing. So like, I, I'm not worried about the XFL necessarily, but I, I, I think that the arrogance from some CFL people, um, you know, the CFL is a bankrupt league as well. I mean, you, yep. we're talking about Toronto's, you know, in shambles, uh, BC, you know, even in the teams in Alberta, Edmonton and Calgary, 
Like they're they're not doing so hot either. Calgary's been like that forever. Like they they can kind of hide in those red seats, but sometimes I look at those games years going back two, three, four years. There's maybe like ten thousand people in the stands. So I think Calgary's a real. I think there's a lot of problems with the CFL. So I don't think it's wise to be throwing throwing shade at you know the biggest movie star in the world. Is this another instance of? worry about your own burning house and not so much about the one behind you yeah i think i think you'd just be wise well i found it humorous and uh, you know nothing will probably come of it i'm probably looking too uh deeply into it you know that's the rock. what we do here buddy that's what we do yeah. we delve exactly. into the minutia dig in deep because what else is there to talk about true but i think that maybe you should just you know do your own thing worry about the tie cats don't worry about the two-time failed league the xfl yeah, I'm just I'm gonna continue to take my shots because that XFL podcast guy I don't like care for to be quite honest with you, but uh, <laughs> I'm, he's he, I mean, did you see his tweet about like first off, Dunkster didn't write the article that Bob Young quote like that we quoted on Bob like that wasn't Dunk that wrote it, but yet somehow Dunk gets labeled and everything. But in any event, I don't know. There's oh, uh, there's a lot of dumbasses out there. I saw some. <laughs> well, that's that's a leading statement. Like this guy the can-am prep football or whatever you see oh, this guy? No, that's, no. it's so like I, I like just don't even like oh my god he's so like get a life man like jesus murphy like every day capital letters like quote tweeting i saw one uh he did one at a dunk today and i was he was like show us the numbers don't show us i was like read the article the numbers are in the article like he's just he's insufferable i can't stand that guy People like to shoot their mouth off. If you've never created anything or never had to do anything, then you're you're pretty you're pretty mouthy when it comes to stuff like this. Uh, before we move on, though, what, how do you feel it's this new ownership? This new like, yeah, Young's part of the old guard, but you got you got Stern in, in Montreal. You got uh, what's the guy's name in BC? I oh, I'm drawing a blank. Doman? 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 Something like that. Yeah. What he's doing in BC? You got Kui in in Edmonton. I know he's not the owner, but he's like the public face of the franchise. What do you make of this sort of like new ownership kind of getting getting themselves out there and, and and doing kind of the legwork to maybe try to build things back up? BC, we obviously talked about last week, their big success. You obviously said Edmonton still has some work to do, but they've rebuilt sort of that, you know, maybe maybe rebuilt some of the bridges with a fan base that had kind of gone mm-hmm. away the last couple of years. And yep. then you got Gary Stern here guaranteeing victories and shooting his mouth off. Like, I think it's great. And maybe it'll bite them in the butt eventually. But I think this sort of stuff is, I just, I I think any sort of, like, maybe it's the wrestling fan in me, but any sort of this, like, back and forth, I, I think it's fantastic. What about you? I think it's great, too. I, I, they're trying, you know what I mean? They're, they're putting in the effort. And, um, you know, I, I, you know, I had some derogatory things to say about the Elks earlier in the show, but Victor Kui is doing a, a tremendous job. He is, you know, there's a lot of burnt bridges that the the old regime did to this fan base. Um, and I think he's doing a tremendous job trying to build it back up. He has a ways to go, like I said, but he's putting in the effort. The BC guy, tremendous. You know, I don't think um, you can't have one Republic perform at every show, obviously, but I think you can make it an event where you could get, you know, 25,000 people out there for every game. Like, I don't think it's going to be 35 every game, like the first game, but he's trying. And I think that, that's what Toronto needs. Someone to try. Um, I know it's the toughest market in the league, but you see what these guys are doing. BC is a tough market too. Montreal, 
Um, you know, I think in Montreal, all you have to do is put a winning team on the field and they'll come back. But uh, I love all the new guys that are that are trying to step up and, uh, you know, rebuild fan bases. Like you said, they're trying something. At least if it doesn't work, they can't be like, it didn't work. We didn't mm-hmm. do anything. It didn't work. You know what I mean? They're at least giving it an honest effort. And if it doesn't work, then you move on to something else. If it does work, great. All right, let's move on to some CFL news, Mike. This past weekend saw the 2020 and 2021 classes of the Canadian Football Hall of Fame finally get their inductions And the CFL then wasted no time in announcing on Tuesday the Hall of Fame class of 2022, led by former Edmonton and Toronto quarterback Ricky Ray, who was inducted in his first year of eligibility. Joining Ray in the 2022 class are Chip Cox, Paul McCallum, Tim Tyndale, and Dick Thornton in the players category, and Dave Richard, Keith Evans, and Roy Shivers in the builders category. Like Ray, Chip Cox was also a first ballot Hall of Famer, and he and Ray have become just the 23rd and 24th players ever inducted into this Canadian Football Hall of Fame in their first year. I think we can both agree that Ray getting in first ballot was a no-brainer. But Chip Cox? Like, I'm trying, I'm, I'm not trying, I should say, to take away anything from what was an excellent career, but Damon Allen, who retired as the all-time leader in passing yards in professional football, wasn't even a first ballot selection. Chip Cox being the 24th person in the history of the Hall of Fame to make it in in his first year to me feels like I must have missed something. I know I know he was very good. I, I hated him as a player because of how good he was. But do you remember him and like watching him play and going, oh, this guy is a no doubt Hall of Famer because I don't. And guys who go in, their, in on, their, on their first ballot to me, those are the creme de la creme that you're, you watched him play and you said, Midway through his career, that guy's going to the Hall of Fame. I didn't feel that way about Cox. Did you? No. Like, obviously, we held him in high esteem. He was one of the best defensive players in his era. But, yeah, I'm with you. I don't think he was – if Damon Allen's not a first ballot Hall of Famer, neither is Chip Cox because, you know, Damon Allen, the numbers he put up, the great cups he won, it just doesn't make any sense. Maybe it's a thing of negligence. You know, they just, like, missed some guys that should have been – first ballot hall of famers because i'm sure if you went through the list there's other guys on that list that should have been but weren't mm-hmm. um but yeah i probably wouldn't have had uh chip cox on the first ballot hall of fame but but ricky ray yeah for sure for sure so cox getting in on the first ballot had me thinking about current players or recently retired players who now seem to be shoe-ins for the hall if if because again, like I said, if you're first ballot, that means that you are a shoe in for the hall. These are just some of the names I, re- I was able to think of off the top of my head. Michael Riley, Bo Levi Mitchell, Zach Calero, Simone Lawrence, Solomon Alamimian, Chris Van Zyl, Adam Big Hill, Speedy B, SJ Green. Those are just names off the top of my head. So like, are, if any of those guys wait a year, I think you like, because what they brought to the game versus what Chip Cox did, I think these guys were better than him at the jobs they did. Like to me, the ex- exclusivity of the Canadian hall was one of its charms. And I'm not saying Cox doesn't deserve to be enshrined, but I just don't think he merited being put in on the first ballot. Now that he has been those names there. And I know I'm forgetting some like definitely forgetting some. We're going to have a whole, like this was one of the things that's like, Oh man, so few guys had been first ballot. And now it seems like every year we're getting one or two. And I don't know, kind of, again, it's a hall of fame. I don't care all that much, but it, I don't know something about it seemed Ah, neat that there were so few versus the other Halls of Fame. I don't know. Maybe that's just me. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to, you know, in the years coming up to see 
who makes the first ballot Hall of Fame. Because like like all those guys you mentioned, if they're not on the first ballot Hall of Famer, then we have a problem. Yeah, I, I agree. Okay, so we didn't spend a ton of time on it, but I still think we spent too much time talking about Cox. And a phrase I like to use instead of cursing the darkness, Mike, I would prefer to light a candle. So let's talk about Ricky Ray. His accolades speak for themselves. Four-time Grey Cup champion, fourth all-time in passing yards, fifth all-time in touchdown passes. Without question, one of the best quarterbacks of his or any era. You and I really need to do that top whatever of the last however many years that we talked about a few weeks ago this offseason. Because the Ricky Ray case, I think, is a really interesting one. But just off the top of your head, where do you... And again, we're not going to hold you to this because we're not going to hold me to it either. Where do you kind of have Ray ranked? Maybe give a a breadth of the area that you have him as ranked as one of maybe one of the top quarterbacks or even one of the top players of of all time or of the last 30 years or what have you. He's I think he's definitely top three from his era as quarterbacks. It's him, Burris and Calvillo. Oh, yeah. But where do you kind of have him in your, in your own personal rankings over whatever you want to however you want to describe it? Well, all time, uh, I'm going to put him outside the top five yeah i, I was just, thinking maybe top eight ish yeah i'm thinking like you know five to ten in that range um he's definitely top 10 but just off the top of my head you got flutie you got mm-hmm. warren moon you got calvillo i think you got russ jackson yeah you gotta put russ in there um damon yeah maybe damon allen might be i'd have to think about it more but i don't think he'd be in my top five ron, right now ron lancaster there's a lot of good quarterbacks. Yeah, Donegan was really good. Yeah. Uh, um, there's been a lot. There's been a Dieter Brock was really. I don't know if he'd be top ten guy or top five guy, but you know we'd have to think about it and get some some names out there. But I I just don't think I could squeeze him into my top five. No. I, yeah. I think he might. I mentioned those four. You you mentioned Flutie, Calvillo, uh, Warren Moon, Ron Lancaster, Rush Jackson. That feels like a pretty darn good top five. And then we're not talking like we we talked about some of it. Danny McManus isn't in there, and I think I think Ray's better than Danny Mac. Uh, mm. I think I think he's better than Dave Dickinson. I think he's better than Jeff Garcia. So yeah, I think I think Ray in that sort of you know five to because I think you can make an argument that he was better than Ron Lancaster. Ron Lancaster won one Grey Cup in Saskatchewan. Ray won Funny, four that's against Plumbers and Carpenters too. Wow. So <laughs> yeah, that's what they always say. But you know what I mean, like. <laughs> Yeah. But Ray, Ray won four, and he went from from Edmonton, which is a, a team that always had success, and then he moved on to Toronto and won two Grey Cups with the Argos. And I, I think there's, I think there's, I don't think there's an argument to say he's the best of all time, but I think there could be an argument for him to. It's I, I think Flutie, Calvillo, and Moon are kind of cemented, and I would say Russ Jackson is as close to cemented as you can get with maybe not being cemented. And I think we give him a little more because he was a Canadian quarterback as well. But he was he was excellent. But again, that's also a little before my time. I don't know, Ray. I think Ray could slide into that top five. Uh, it, but it's one of those things that I think you and I in the off season will kind of we'll really think about it. We'll we'll write it down. We'll we'll come we'll come onto a show and we'll just do a whole thing on top players of whatever. Because it's again, it's hard to it's really hard to rank guys I never saw play. And I've seen highlights of Russ Jackson and Ron Lancaster and and Dieter Brock and guys like that. But I think it's much easier for us to rank guys that we actually saw, if not all of their careers, at least a, a, a large chunk of. Yeah, absolutely. And <clears throat> the funny thing about Damon Allen is it's hard for me to put him in the top five because I thought he, he he was so inconsistent passing the ball 
and maybe I'm wrong, maybe I'm forget, you know, remembering him wrong, but it's just amazing that he's like third on the list of all-time rushing yards. Yeah. Like a quarterback, third on. So they, so that alone is like so impressive that it, he might crack my top five. Yeah. It's, see, to me, it's it's hard for two reasons. One, he bounced around. No one ever really wanted to make him their guy. Yeah. And there, there's got to be a reason for that. It was late in his career. He hung on with BC a while, and then they, I think they signed, I think they signed Dickinson. And then let Allen go to Toronto. And then he hung around with the Argos. But the Argos were out there. They brought in Michael Bishop to take his job. And then I don't think he was there when they brought in Kerry Joseph. But it might have been kind of the end of the road for Allen then. Just no team ever really wanted to make him the guy. And, yes, he's got these massive numbers. But when you play for 22 seasons, you mm-hmm. can compile a lot of stats. But he had a one-year stint in Hamilton. He was, I think he was with Ottawa. Like, it it took a long time for someone to make him the man. And even then in BC, they, they had him and they were like, well, he's old. We're going to go get someone else. That's sort of my thinking on, on Damon. I think Damon Allen's the, maybe in football history, the best stats compiler mm-hmm. that you can talk about. But is he a top five guy? I don't know. I know quarterbacks moved around a lot in the CFL, but it felt like some of these guys moved around. Sometimes it was because of money or whatever, like like Flutie, for instance. And some guys, like Allen, it was teams just never really had that feeling of let's make him our franchise quarterback. And that makes it hard for me to want to put him in in a, in a top five list. Yeah, it's, when you're talking about greatest of all, of all time, you have to nitpick, right? You have to mm-hmm. do those things. And so it's uh, it's an interesting idea. And I, and I look forward to making a lot of top fives in the offseason. Yeah, that's exactly it. When you're talking about the greatest of the greatest – it's it comes down to things like that. Like it comes down to tiny like imperfections in their resumes. It's like when you talk I know it's been done to death, the Jordan LeBron debate. It's people pick apart tiny things in their resumes, but it's like you're talking about who's the best or the second best player in the history of a sport. They're both pretty damn good. So when you get into again, that's the thing when we do this, I don't want it to feel like we're ever knocking guy. It's just you have to go into the minutiae to to pull things out because that's how you you have to make a decision at some point as to who is what. And there's, if, if someone asks you like, why him over him, there's got to be some imperfection in, in number two, three, four to not be number one. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, okay. Moving on to our last topic uh, on the CFL this week and a tiny controversy sprung up this weekend, Mike, when it was announced that Edmonton Elks offensive lineman and the top offensive top paid offensive lineman in the CFL, Mark Corte would not play last Saturday's game against the Saskatchewan Rough Riders because he was getting married. This sparked a bit of a debate online with some saying he should have planned his nuptials for a better time. A lot of former players made statements like that, while others are saying some things are more important than playing a game. The Elks uh, admitted that they were aware of Corte's plans when they signed him in free agency, so the the team clearly did not have a problem with their prized offseason acquisition missing the game. What about you, Mike? Where do you stand on this? Do you think, like a lot of former players, that Corte should have picked a different day for his wedding? Or do you think it's fine for a player to decide that some life events are more important than going to work? I think if the team was fine with it, then then I'm okay with it. You know what I mean? Like maybe it would be different if it was the tiger a tiger cat player or best offensive lineman um, missing a game because of a wedding. But uh, I'm not sure I'd care about that either. Listen, I I understand why people would be upset about this. You know, sometimes you know it is your job, right? Um, but people miss miss days of work all the time for for a wedding or, or stuff like that. So I wasn't really offended by it personally. There was a time, uh, and not that long ago, where players were getting 
ripped apart by the media for missing games because their wife was giving birth. I remember when Ben Roethlisberger was having his first kid that there was genuine discussion amongst NFL media that, well, he can't miss the game. The game's important. It's like, man, he's having a kid. The first right. kid, like, and I know people are saying, and I, we, there was a, a very heated discussion. I won't, maybe heat is not the right word, but there was a very, there was a back and forth discussion with people on both sides in the group chat that we have for all our three down colleagues. And it was, there were some people who were very much, no, you, you pick a better time. You, you have the schedule in advance and you can't do this. And then there was others. And I put myself in this category. They're like, he's missing a day of work. He's an entertainer. Like at the end of the day, I understand it's, it's sports, but it's the entertainment industry. If someone was on a movie set and it was like, I'm going to get married today and they shut things down for a day, no one would care. If you're a recording artist and they were like, I'm going to get married today. We can't record this afternoon. No one would care. Yeah, it's it's a it's a visible job, but at the end of the day, it's a job nonetheless. If I, I I'm not going to get married, but if I was to get married, I would surely be calling up my boss and being like, hey, I'm not clocking into work today because I'm going to get married. And I, I don't think just because he has a high profile job, that should change. We don't know the circumstances around why this day was picked. Maybe the day is important to them. We don't know why. Maybe maybe the venue, this was the only day they could get the venue. I do know that this was a COVID postponement. So who knows the reason why this was, maybe this was the only day they could get amongst a whole host of, of days that they, they could pick from. So you know what I mean? Like, I think people saying like, oh, he's a football player and then football should be on his mind. I think the older you get, the more you realize that there are more important things in life than sports. So I think you're going to see a lot of young people, especially and ex-players, maybe they don't have wives or maybe... I mean, who knows? Maybe they're on their third or fourth marriage for all we know. You know what I mean? Like people who put the game above their loved ones. But there are some people who are just like and I, I do believe this is what happens when you get older, because I've been like this. There was a time when I told my brother that if your girlfriend gives birth to my future nephew and it happens on the day of a Ticats game, I won't be there. What a stupid thing to say. You know, like he wants me there for the birth of his son. But I'm like, nope, got to go to a football game. Like in hindsight, it looks like a complete tool. Luckily, that didn't happen. He was born. It was during the week. Everything happened fine. It was awesome. But you know what I mean? Like, can you imagine, like, looking back on that, if, if he would have been born on, because he's born early September, if he would have been born on Labor Day, and it's like, no, sorry, can't be at the hospital. I got to watch the Thai Cats and the Argos. But, like, get get lost. Actually, I guess that year would have been the Thai Cats and the Owls. I think that was the, <laughs> the one year they couldn't play. But you know what I mean? Like, you grow yeah. up, you get older, you realize that sports aren't the be-all and end-all. I have I had no problems whatsoever. I think this is perfectly fine. Like you said, the team didn't care, so why should we? And maybe the wife or the soon-to-be wife wanted that date um, for a reason. You know, you never know. And, you know, exactly. I, I, think rather, I think I'd rather get in trouble with my coach than my wife. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, you don't well, want well, to feel here, that. Here's the, here's the thing. You got to live with her and you want to make yes. her happy. Just like she wants to make you – like, I know people say happy wife, happy life. I say happy spouse, happy house. You know what I mean? Right. Like, you want to make everyone happy, right? But at the yeah. same time – Okay, if this was really a problem for Edmonton and they were like, nope, you either you either suit up for us or we're cutting you, you don't think that eight other teams would be lining up to sign this guy? He's the mm -hmm. highest paid offensive lineman in the league for a reason. He's pretty damn good at his job. He wouldn't be out of work for long. So, I mean, the Elks were kind of in a situation where they had no choice but to agree with it. But at the end of the day, if you didn't, if you don't agree with this, like I said, you, not that long ago, we were talking about players shouldn't miss for the for the birth of their children. And now if a guy's like, well, we had with Dane Evans, his wife gave birth a couple weeks ago. Uh, as a side note, congratulations to them on the birth of their of their daughter. I hope everyone's happy and healthy. But he said in a press conference that he nearly missed the game in Saskatchewan as he was going onto the plane. 
because something was happening. He didn't delve into what it was. But if he had missed that game, do you think anyone would have said, how dare he do that to his teammates? Of course not. So in 20 years time, we'll probably think the same thing about winning. More often than not, this is not going to happen. Guys will plan for Mm -hmm. CFL March, April weddings. You know what I mean? But like you said, this date could have been important to his wife. And I think it means much more that that because because he's hopefully for his sake, He's going to be in this relationship a hell of a lot longer than he's going to be in one with Chris Jones yeah. and the Edmonton Elks. Yeah, and it's funny you think if if any coach in the league would be you know rubbed the wrong way because of it, it would have been Chris Jones, but you know apparently not. So uh, hats off to Jones for that one. All right, I'm 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 not I won't say I'm surprised that you and I agree on this, but I was I was I was curious as to where you fell on this topic because this this has been kind of divisive, which I think is kind of stupid, but. You and I agree, so we can move on. So now it's time to close things out on the show like we do every single week, and that is by previewing the next Ticats game. And, Mike, this one is a doozy. The Ticats head into hostile territory on Friday night for a Grey Cup rematch with the two-time defending champion Winnipeg Blue Bombers. The Bombers enter this one sporting a pristine 2-0 record after escaping their first two games of the season against the much-improved Ottawa Red Blacks. The Bombers' vaunted defense was on full display the last two weeks, allowing just 29 points in their two games against Ottawa and holding the Red Blacks out of the end zone entirely in that second meeting. But all was not rosy for the back-to-back champions as Red Blacks quarterback and former Ticats quarterback Jeremiah Mazzoli was able to kind of dice apart that Bombers passing defense throwing for what is now a league-leading 711 yards combined in those first two games while going over the 330-yard mark in each game. The Ticats head into this one, licking their wounds, obviously, after coughing up a 24-point lead to the Calgary Stampeders. But despite the loss, the team seemed to have found their offensive spark. Dane Evans threw for 425 yards and three touchdowns against the Stamps, while Tim White had 11 catches for, I think it was 131, 32 yards, and Braylon Addison did Braylon Addison things, contributing in both the pass and run games. I think this game's going to be a really good one. I think it's going to be a tough test for the Ticats, who are hoping to get their first win of the season. So, Mike... What do you think the Ticats need to do to leave the Manitoba capital with the dub and avoid falling to 0-3? I think they need smart play calling on offense like they like they had uh, in the last game against Calgary. Um, I think they need to limit the turnovers because we've had, um, you know, a lot of trouble with that in the first two games. And I think the defensive line needs to get pressure on the quarterback. Uh, we haven't seen that much in the first two games. Uh, I think you need to make Caleros uncomfortable. So the D-line is very important in this one, the play calling, and, um, you know, obviously the offensive line as well. So um, those are a couple of the things that I'm looking for in this game. And, you know, the Bombers haven't looked as good as they have in the last two seasons. Um, I think they're a little bit vulnerable. I think maybe, I I don't want to say losing Andrew Harris was like a massive deal because, um, I think the running backs that they have are formidable, but they just haven't had that running game that they've had in the last couple of years. Yeah, I agree with you completely on the running game. If that is out, and they've mentioned it on the broadcast of the past two Bombers games, which is why I I question whether Zach Caleros is the best player in the league, because they talk about, well, if Winnipeg doesn't have a run game, then you don't want Caleros throwing the ball 30 times. And it's like, Okay, but if he's supposed to be the top quarterback and he is the reigning MLP, he is the reigning Grey Cup MVP, he's won back-to-back Grey Cups. If that's not a guy you trust going back 30, 35 times a game to throw the ball, then what quarterback should you trust? You know what I mean? Like, if Winnipeg's entire offense is predicated on being able to run the football, then almost any quarterback you think could have gone back there and did what Caleros did. Now, I'm not saying that, but I'm just saying that's, to me, the logical extension of that argument. 
So for me going into this game, Mike, I'm going to sound like a broken record, but it's the stuff that we kind of talked about earlier. You brought up turnovers. That's something that obviously needs to get taken care of. My focus for this team most of the year has been starting hot, and they definitely did against the Stampeders. They scored 17 in the first quarter and 24 in the first half. But now I have to see them close out games. Against the defending champs, you have to play a full 60 minutes. And we have yet to see the Ticats do that through the season's first two games. And then, of course, like I said, turnovers, keeping them to a minimum. If Dane Evans protects the football and the line holds up well, as I believe it did against the Stamps, I think plays will be there to be made. We saw Ottawa have success moving the ball. I see no reason why the Ticats can't have similar success, Mike. Having said all that, I do have a bad feeling about this one. I think asking this Ticats team that has been so frustratingly inconsistent so far to put it all together against a team like Winnipeg might be too much to ask. But, and again, I'm kind of going back and forth here. If there was ever time to pull off the upset on the road, I think this is the time. You mentioned it. Winnipeg has not looked anything close to the team that we saw a season ago. So maybe this is the Ticats catching them, you know, slipping. And maybe they can steal one, get their season back on track. I'm not sure they can. My confidence level isn't very high, but I do kind of want to know where your confidence level is heading to this game. Because from the sounds of it, you're more 50-50 than I am on this one. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to say I think they win this one. Really? Uh, I, I think that they're going to be highly motivated. You know, obviously the last two Grey Cup games didn't turn out the way that they wanted or that we wanted. Uh, and and this isn't the Grey Cup game, but I think the Ticats are going to come in there and they're going to they're gonna give, you know, 110% to use a cliche, but uh, I think they're going to be highly motivated. And I think that what I saw from them last game makes me confident that they can move the ball against a, a pretty good team. Not now the Calgary Stampeders defense is in the Winnipeg Blue Bombers defense, but I feel like they've lost some pieces over the years and they're not the same Blue Bomber defense they were. So I think we're going to win this game. I, I really do. How worried will you be if they lose? I'll be pretty worried. I mean, 0-3 is not, is not great. Um, you know, we have an 18-game season this year, so it can be turned around. But if they perform really badly... Um, if the offense, you know, digresses back to the the first game of the season, um, if the defensive line doesn't get any pressure again, um, then yes, I will be worried. Will you be less worried if the other East teams lose this week? Because yeah, that's I think so. Correct. That's a possibility. If, Thursday if night. Still, you know, the leading team in the league is one and two, or in the East is one and two, um, and we're 0 and three. You know, we're still right in the hunt, but. I st- even so, I don't want them to be 0-3. I, I think that the wheels, you know, they need to get going here. Um, get some momentum going into uh, the bye week. I think the bye week is in uh, uh, the fifth week of the season. So if we can r- rally off two wins in a row and, and go into the bye week 2-2, two and two, then I'll be pretty happy. So the reason I ask is because Montreal hosts the Riders, who have looked tremendous so far this season, and the Red Blocks are on a bye and the Argos play at BC at, you know, it's a late game on Saturday night and BC looked, BC had a bye last week. The Argos had a bye week one. BC looked tremendous the first week of the season. So there's a real possibility that the Owls lose and the Argos lose. So the Ticats could be in a points tie for first if they win and only a game and a half back, you know, two points back of Toronto, even if they lose. So that's why I asked that. And you are right. The, the bye week, they play Winnipeg this week. They host the Elks. And the reason I asked you'll be worried because that's the one I have circled. If this team's 0-4 and, 
Mm-hmm. Now, now we're going to have some some questions. We're, yeah. The panic button's going to be just fine. because they're 0 4, but because they lost to, to the Elks. You yeah. know? At home. Not just losing right. the Elks, but losing the Elks at home. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the one that I think they have to. If they lose to Winnipeg, but it's a good showing, like again, like you said, if they regress back to what we saw against the Riders, then maybe I it's a cause for concern. But if they show well enough and they lose on the road to defending champs in a close game, I'm not going to kill them for it. I'm not going to be happy they're 0 three, but I'm not going to I'm not going to beat them up like I would if they you know they lose 45 to four, or if they lose the following week on candidate to the Elks. But that's the one. The Elks game next week that we'll talk about. That's the one that I have circled. That's a to me not a must win, but you got to win that one. If you go to especially if you lose this week, if you go to 0 and, 0 and four and your fourth loss is a home loss to the Elks, then I think we got to have serious conversations about whether this team is even going to make the playoffs this year because Edmonton has looked by far like the worst team in the CFL in, in 2022 so far. So this one, I'm a, again, like I said, I'm, I'm on the fence. I think I'm leaning more towards Winnipeg pulling this off, but I, I do obviously hope that you're right and the Ticats can get this because if they go into the, they go into the bye two and two, I think we're, we're entering that bye week having a, a much a much more jovially than we would be uh, if they go in even at one and three. So I guess we'll have to wait and see though, right? This uh, I do think this should be a good game. The last time I said that it was the dud against the Riders, but this one feels like just because of how Winnipeg has, what's the word? Like they're not bad, but they haven't looked that great. I think this could this could be one that Ticats steal, and I think this that could make this a much more interesting game. I think these teams are more evenly matched than maybe their records indicate. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if, if they come out like that, like I said, if they come out. And we have the offense and we have the game plan like we did against Calgary and it works out the way it did and we limit the turnovers. I think we have a really good shot at beating Winnipeg and, you know, they're due for a loss. They just are. Yeah. I, I you know what? They, they could have lost both of those games against Ottawa. So there's definitely that feel of they're kind of playing with fire and maybe it catches up to them this week and hopefully for the Thai cats and their fans, it, it does. And, and next week you and I, we do our post game show on Twitter that we'll always do. And we're talking about the first win of the season and you and I can come on here and have, have a happy, happy joy, joy instead of some of these, these misery fests. And I, I think I actually were, you and I are, are still fairly upbeat, even given the team's Owen two start to the season. Yeah. We're used to the misery fests on, on this show. Josh. That's true. That's true. When you lose, they've what they've lost. What? Well, they've lost two great cups since we started. Yeah. Uh, recording, but the, our first year was after they had lost the 14 Grey Cup. Mm-hmm. We've seen the 0 and 8 start. We've seen started off with misery. <laughs> we started off we, the show with misery. The first season, no, we did because well, yeah, first first show we did, but the first season that's when everything was going well, and then Calero t- tears his knee and everything went to crap. So if there's if there's we whatever this team hands us, we can definitely handle it. So hopefully we're talking about a victory next week, but if we're not, we'll, we'll try to stay upbeat as we go into what I think is the game that they absolutely have to win against the Elks next Friday on Canada day. So that was pods Kiwi for this week. I am Josh Smith. And I'm Mike Graham. Eat them raw. Eat them raw.